You guys are three minutes early. <laughs> I guess the first time I've ever experienced that. <laughs> Great work. A few of you commented during the practice discussions today how still that you're sensing the hall is already. How quiet the hall is, how um, quiet people are being. Just there's a lot of care being taken for each other on this retreat so far. So just want to thank you all for that sensitivity and um, care for the collective sangha. It really makes a difference as we're deepening into this retreat. So being human is vulnerable, huh? Have you noticed that today? Anyone noticing any vulnerability? Yeah. It's really tender. It's really tender to be human. I'm curious if you're willing to just popcorn style, just say a few um just a like just a word or two of how you're doing just popcorn style how are you tired calm tired quiet supported Deliberate, challenged a bit, curious, appreciative, hungry, (sighs) (laughs) we have one hungry, one hopeful. Clear, clear. I'm really sensing the stillness. Stillness, tenderness, vulnerability. And like I said, this collective care for each other. I think particularly in this time, these times, it's so important to take this time to be in a safe, deliberately safe container to allow the heart and mind to settle. So we're in a bit of a transition period as well in this retreat. We spent the past two days uh, focusing on the settling or the samadhi practice, the settling and stabilizing the mind. And tonight I'll be introducing the insight practice where will start to orient the mind towards different ways of seeing. Traditionally called the three characteristics. So the 
impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness of experience, and the um, lack of self-referencing, the anatta aspect of experience. We're referring to them on this retreat as the three ways of seeing because um, that speaks more to the felt sense of how we practice rather than being like a characteristic of a metaphysical reality. So we want to really point towards the changing, emergent nature of uh, these ways of orienting the mind. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the samadhi or the clarif- the unifying of the mind. Um, and then we'll... Uh, then I'll introduce those other practices and talk a little bit about the the relationship between these two practices as well. But first I wanted to just set the context of what we're doing from the point of view of the Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths are that, you know, one that just nature, just the nature of this phenomena, that there's unsatisfactoriness. It's the nature of how it is here, is that it's, there's friction, there's a rub. And then the second truth is that we're, we, when we cling, when we grasp, when we fixate, any kind of fixation is what causes undue suffering, undue pain, undue difficulty, that we can't get away from this friction. This friction is just the nature of reality. This is one of the ways that we can train in seeing. But that this grasping, that this clinging is what causes our, our, our suffering, our pain. And that it's possible to release and let go, deeply release and deeply let go. This conditioning is very, very kind of ingrained conditioning. And the path to that is the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path starts with and ends with wise view. And wise view is just this this, uh, architecture that I just went through. That when we fixate, we suffer. And so the whole orientation of everything we're doing is directing our attention towards clarity of view. I really, the Tibetans have a way of um, talking about this around the two forms of veils that I really like. The first veil they say is, and these are veils that overlay the nature, the reality, the reality of the you know, the dukkha, the reality of the change, the the reality of the lack of self-referencing, that there's these veils that overlay experience. And the first veil is the veil of reactivity. So this is like when you have a strong emotion, right? And when you have a strong emotion, like if you're feeling uh, aversion, you don't like anything, the mind just is aversion, 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 aversion. So that's pretty clear to see. 
or if you're feeling sadness, all of a sudden there's just a sense of hopelessness and hopelessness is kind of overlaying all experience. And that's pretty obvious. Like we get triggered, we're reactive, we know it's there. Sometimes it can get really entrenched and pretty painful, but it's relatively easy to see, especially if we've been practicing for a long time. We kind of have a sense of what our reactive patterns are. The other kind of veil is much more subtle. It's the veil of fixed views. So they're beliefs that we have about reality that often we don't see. So we might have a belief about reality like, um, I don't belong. And in, you know, when we walk into a situation, we just have this sense, I don't belong. And that's kind of the story that happens and we just believe it. Or we might have a story, I'm not enough. Or the world isn't safe. Or I'm better than everyone. Or I'm less than everyone. Or um, there's so many. But they, and they're, they're, they're underneath the surface and we often don't see them. And so what we're doing with this practice, you know, of what we're doing here where we're settling and stabilizing our mind, what we're calling samadhi, settling and stabilizing the mind, stilling, 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 stilling. And then we're going to start to orient towards what's called wise view. You know, start to see, all right, everything is in flux. There's actually no fixed point that is Erin. If I try to find Erin, she's not here. There's no fixed point. Wow, my partner who I love so much, three seconds ago totally annoyed me. You know, like life is unsatisfactory. Even the pleasure causes pain. You know, it's, it's not a refuge. So we start to, to orient in these ways, these ways of seeing reality. It's called yata bhuta, seeing things as they are. And as we see things as they are, it uproots these wrong views. So it uproots these views that we have that we're a separate self, that we have that, we're, um, that life is fixed and not changing. But it also uproots these, uh, helps to uproot these other views. I don't belong. It's not safe. They become more lucid. They become more transparent. And I think when we know this, it helps to increase our sense of trust in the practice. Because a lot of times these views are running the show and they want to like be thought about or they want to be connected to. And so... I find it like generates a lot of faith to say, okay, even though there's a lot of material going on, like in the background, by turning our attention to reality on its own terms, it's going to help to, it's going to be, it's a condition that's going to help to uproot some of these other things, these other views. And they kind of like work simultaneously so that we come into a sense of, um, view and experience where we no longer feel separate, where we no longer feel isolated, where we feel our inner connection with all phenomena, 
And I think especially in these times when I think so many of us are drawn to um, this like radical inclusivity, really wanting to include it all, while at the same time have clarity of voice to be able to see what is causing harm and be able to speak to it. This is so important to have this clarity that comes through this practice, this clarity that comes through knowing who we are, seeing our different veils, having an orientation towards reality on its own terms, and also deeply trusting ourselves. Deeply, deeply trusting ourselves. Because the Dhamma, as beautiful as it is, predates the Buddha. It's not like the Buddha came up with the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the Dhamma, and the Buddha saw it. He came into like contact with it and had this amazing mind that could that could that could teach and could categorize and he could see really clearly. But what we're practicing here is not the, you know, it's like the form is in support. All the teachings are in support. We're pointing to what you already know. What's deeply already inside of you. Like what called you here? We each had a call to these teachings. My friend, good friend, Bonnie Duran, she says that uh, this practice is a practice of decolonizing the mind. She's a a Native American Dharma teacher and uh, associate professor at uh, University of Washington and runs their Indigenous Research Institute. And she talks about, you know, in these times, um, this rewilding of the mind this decolonization of the mind. There's all this fixed conditioning of racism and homophobia and misogyny and patriarchy and all these different conditionings, not to mention then the psychological veils and the um, core beliefs. And that these, these teachings have the capacity for us to see all of that clearly. And I believe uproot it So we can be fierce, fierce, fierce agents of truth in whatever way is, motivates us, whatever way we're inspired. So we're here today focusing on this collected and unified mind learning how to stabilize. And I think the point that I want to add, one of the points I want to add to what's already been said, is that the collected and unified mind is already here. It's not anything that we need to go out and find. It's not anything that we need to um, create. The collected and unified mind is already here. It's It's a part of our nature. And what we do is we we have uh, the capacity to create the conditions so that we can start to, or not just start to, but actually experience and stabilize the connection with that. 
And uh, how I experience that is through, it's a deep listening. It's a deep, deep listening. And we've been using the breath, or some people have been using sound, but it's this deep listening that just gets more subtle and subtle and subtle and subtle. And, you know, we create the conditions through this, what we call one-pointed focus or, you know, uh, aiming and sustaining the attention on an object like the breath. But we're not in control of the outcome, so we create the conditions and then we receive what reality brings to us. I have a good friend who's been practicing for over 40 years, you know, just brilliant, very, 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 very skilled practitioner. And they went on retreat for six weeks um, and said, yeah, the mind never stabilized. For six weeks, very senior practitioner. The conditions didn't come together. Sometimes the conditions come together, sometimes they don't. It's not our business. We're not as in control as we think we are. But we can, with a wholehearted effort, do our best to create the conditions that we've talked, you know, that the conditions that we've talked about those quite a bit. So we just want to make that point that we're really making an offering with our practice. And then what we get, we want to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. You know, at the end of every sitting, like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For whatever you've gotten back from your wholehearted offering to the mystery or to reality or to whatever. It's like a way of taking refuge in the Dhamma. We're just trusting. We trust the feedback that we get. Anything that arises, we trust, okay, this is what I need to integrate. This is what I need to learn. This is what I'm here to receive. It's a practice in anatta as well. Lack of self-referencing. I remember one time I had signed up for a multi-year program and uh, I was in a multi-year program and then I got um, admitted to graduate school. So I had to leave a retreat after two days and go into the world. And my mind was all over the place, I'm sure of it. You know, it was day two. We all saw that, right? It's the, some stillness and settledness and some pleasure, some of you reported, but it's a lot of wrangling often. Not always, but often. And I couldn't believe how still I was. I was so still. I mean, I remember being in class and being so non-reactive and so quiet and so internal and... I just couldn't believe the level of stillness that I could perceive when the, in the outside world, but I couldn't have perceived it while I was here. So there's a stillness, there's a settling that's happening, even if you're not actually perceiving it. And it's this, it's this sensitivity, this continued trust and faith and letting go 
and coming back to the primary object and this deeper and deeper listening. It's like just settling so close in and just listen, 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 listen. And the ear just gets more and more subtle and more and more sensitive. Susie gave a really nice answer to that, I think, two days ago, that sometimes our attention isn't subtle enough to meet the object. And so we're, we're training in this sensitivity. And um, from my point of view, it's this sensitivity of what is so needed, you know, relationally, to the planet, to, you know, for all things, this training and sensitivity. So yeah, just wondering right now, you don't have to get in any special posture or anything, but can you sense a sense of stability right now? Can you sense a sense of stillness? You don't need to answer, but just look. Can you sense a sense of just stillness or stability or quietness or steadiness? There's a Navajo prayer that um, represents the concentrated mind to me. It says, um, in beauty I walk, with beauty I walk before me, with beauty behind me, with beauty above me, with beauty around me. It has become beauty again. 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 In beauty I walk. With beauty before me I walk. With beauty behind me I walk. With beauty above me I walk. With beauty around me I walk. It has become beauty again. 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 Just a few other points I want to make from things that have come up in the practice discussions. One is that... um, it's good to let go of our concept of what breath is. So if you think breath means just in the body, you know, sometimes breath can open up um, in other, just other ways. And we want to just keep letting go of any concept of how it's going to unfold and just be with reality how it unfolds on its own terms. So I recommend letting go any concept of what breath is and just trusting how the practice of the stabilization on breath unfolds. The second is around um, balancing the effort. So um, just a few helpful things that uh, people have told me that I think that haven't been said that have been so useful for me is one, if you notice that the mind gets tight, it can be extremely helpful to open the eyes and look outdoors or look around the room. 
So if you notice the mind gets tight, it's a really good idea just to open the eyes, look outside, let the mind relax. And then once you notice there's a little more settling, come back in, come back into the practice on the breath. I can't take credit for that. That's from Sally Armstrong, a beloved teacher here. Yeah, I just want to um, emphasize that devotional quality to the breath. Breath is lover. Breath is friend. Any way that the... um, Any way that that, if that devotional quality opens up in you to really uh, allow that to happen, it can be very nourishing. Some people are devotional and some people aren't. So you wouldn't want to like generate it, but if it's there, I want to give permission for it. Also, another thing that's been very helpful is around energy. This comes from Philip Moffat, one of our other beloved teachers here, is to just incline the mind towards effort. So if you notice that it's your off balance, there's a little more relaxation than ease, you can just like just very um, gently just say like, may effort arise or just effort, effort, effort. And again, sometimes it will come just by naming it. Other times it won't. It's an offering. So you're inclining the mind, you're intending, but you're not in control. Any of this, it's like we're not in control. We're just intending. We're just inclining. It's play, you guys. Like we're in play. We're exploring our minds, what awakens our hearts. It's a real sense of like being able to fail and try something. And is it helpful now? Maybe it's help, not helpful today, but it'll be helpful tomorrow. Like just exploring. We're explorers on this path. And two more points is one is sometimes, um, it's been mentioned, but I just want to emphasize it at this stage is that sometimes, uh, the, the practice can be very pleasurable and, um, we've misinterpreted the teachings to think that that's not okay. And, um, there's a very wholesome pleasure that can arise with this practice and it's actually okay to, um, just to, to focus on it, to invite it, to, um, to pay attention to it with the breath, to include it actually is very skillful just to include the wholesome pleasure with the attention to the breathing as we continue to stabilize our mind over the course of the next several days. And then the final one is around intensity. Sometimes it can get very intense. And I've said this to many of you in interviews, but, um, one of my favorite lines, this is from Chogram Trumpa, is that what we're doing is we're meeting our edge and softening. So if something becomes very intense, just notice the edge and soften. Open the eyes, stabilize, feel your bones, and just coming, keep coming really close into the experience. Come really back into the breath 
but we're not anti-intensity. It can kind of seem that way. And sometimes things are really subtle and sometimes things are intense. And um, because I have a very strong emotional body and very, um, very, uh, yeah, just very strong emotional body and energetic body, it's often how my practice is. There's a lot of intensity. So I've really had to learn to like sit in that fire and stay grounded in the body and really close into the experience. And so again, it can get a little edgy. You really just want to soften, notice it, soften, come back, let go, trust, not control. So... So tomorrow we're going to shift the instructions from this collecting and unifying to turning towards these three ways of seeing. And um, we'll continue to stabilize with the unification process, process, with this samadhi process, with the connection to breath. So we'll do that for the first part, and then we'll open up. As the story goes with the Buddha, you know, he was a very um, avid, like, like a concentration walla. He was really good at concentrating. And what he saw was that the concentration didn't uproot. He wasn't free enough. You know, he saw, he was an honest practitioner. I've seen that in, in many of you. It's like you see where the delusion is. You know, you just can, you just see it, you know. You know, we can't really fool ourselves very well once we start practicing um, this. And he saw, yeah, this, this isn't doing it. And um, as the story goes, actually, I wasn't going to share this, but it's here, so I will. As the story goes, as it's been told to me, he was, um, you know, he had this memory of being under a rose apple tree as a child, and that there hadn't been that much effort. Am I talking loud enough? Raise your hand if I'm, okay, good. There hadn't been this much, that much effort. And he had been like doing a lot of effort. He had been doing a ton of effort in his practice. And so um, he decided he was going to eat. And he went to a well, the center of a village, and there was a woman there named Sujata in a blue sari. And Sujata gave him rice milk. And it was through receiving that rice milk that was the beginning of the middle way. It was the beginning of him being able to come to the insights that would then uproot the defilements that had been hindering him through just the concentration and aesthetic path. So it wasn't just the, the, um, the orienting towards the characteristics and the um, Four Noble Truths, but it was also this receptivity, this relaxation, this feminine, this taking in the rice milk at the well, the center of the village, the wellspring, the source of water. So when we turn our mind towards these characteristics, 
we're now orienting towards seeing things as they are. Seeing reality on its own terms. Not seeing reality in these three ways is what defines ignorance. So when we say ignorance, that's what we mean, is when you're not seeing reality through the lens of um, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And what we find through that orientation is a deeper kind of happiness, a deeper kind of happiness than what, than what comes through um, grasping after sense pleasures or pushing away what we don't want. And I really like this term like sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, that we can hear these teachings and they sound inspiring and we learn new things and then they gradually integrate and we act, we gradually cultivate the insights. So the first of these three is impermanence. And I'll talk more about this, but I just want to go through the three. You know, this is like where we're trying to find ground where there is no ground. Where we're trying to find a hold where there is no hold. We think there's one thing that's going to be stable. Nope. It's all changing. And then dukkha, uh, I think Donald and I agree on this. We both like the term reactivity uh, to partially um, name this. So dukkha, you know, it, using the phrase reactivity to include the um, description. So dukkha is this like this friction, this way that life is just unsatisfying, like I've mentioned. And then there's this reactivity this clinging, this craving that goes along with it, that can go, it doesn't have to go along with it, but that can go along with it. And so we're training and seeing what's the difference between just the friction and the clinging, that feeling. And I would hope that everyone walks away from this retreat having a deeper understanding of what it means to cling and what it means to let go. And just focusing on that, just what it means to cling and what it means to let go over and over and over again, especially over part of this next day. And then the third is uh, what's called anatta, often translated as not self. I just don't like that translation. Um, I like lack of self-referencing uh, because I th- we can interpret this as like, uh, especially because the Buddhist teachings the Buddha was kind of brilliant in this way, but he also drove me crazy, frankly. It drives me crazy, frankly. <laughs> you know, because he talks about what we're not. You know, so we're not greed. We're not hatred. We're not delusion. Greed, hatred, and delusion don't lead to freedom. In the early text, which is what we teach here, he doesn't talk a lot about what we are, right? So it kind of drives me nuts because I'd like more words to be able to use that are, you know, uh, from the earliest early text. But what I love about that is that it leaves it open to the mystery. And I think that's the wisdom in it. Is that by not saying what we are, 
as explorers on the path, we get to see when we let go of craving, when we are open to impermanence, when we uh, thin that sense of self, you know, when the sense of self is thin, what emerges? What emerges in that space? What happens? You know, what I notice is generosity, kindness, an incredible capacity to be with suffering, tenderness, care, often an ache in my heart, love, power, beauty, perceiving others in all those ways, luminosity, clarity. And that's my direct experience. Yeah, so the essence of this practice is cutting through the ignorance to uproot these unwise views. So, Anicca, change. One of my um, all-time favorite Anicca stories actually happened today when um, I texted Susie to see how she was doing. And she immediately called me up. It's like, Aaron, Aaron. Like, yes. I didn't expect her to be so excited. She wasn't doing well, you know? And she's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. You have to tell the yogis. You have to tell the yogis. Anything can happen in any moment. <laughs> and it's on the day you're going to talk about a Nietzsche. Can you believe this? Can you believe this? Anything can happen in any moment. Tell the yogis, tell the yogis. It's like, are you okay? You know, like, <laughs> like whatever about Anicca, how are you? You know, but it was just such a, a moment of um, incredible joy getting that a teaching from her because I thought, like, um, what a fucking practitioner. You know, she's just right in there with her practice. And that's what we're training for. When we're training to see these truths so that when the rubber meets the road, we don't cling. When the rubber meets the, the road, we can still laugh and receive the love of our friends. We can still give. I mean, she was thinking of all of you. Not only, but like partially. So change, you know, it happens on obviously like the gross level, right? We see change in weather, we see change in the days, we see change, change. That's pretty obvious. Won't go into that right now. What we're practicing particularly here, although we can, you know, we do practice it on the gross level on retreat. I think it's just so still here. And after that Susie comment, I want to, I want to go to the sensory and we'll see where I end up. We're practicing in our, um, in our sitting practice is really coming close in to the sensory experience of change. So we'll start to um, notice with the breath 
with sounds, with emotions, with sensations, that they're constantly changing. We'll start to orient the attention to anicca, to change. So it's not like, I'm looking at change now. It's not tense. It's like a very subtle inclination of the mind. Change, 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 change. And you just start to orient to change. It's like an orientation of the mind to start to see how our sensory experience, sensations, sound, you know, uh, movement, stillness, how it's all in constant flux. What this does is it helps to cut through our conceptual overlay, starts to cut through our conceptual mind. And so you'll see, like in this practice, you know, you'll start to like, okay, you're noticing change. And then you're like, oh, wow, I'm noticing change. I'm doing it. Oh my God, it's happening. It's, is, 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 is this the inside? Is it, you know, I don't know what your mind, but you know, it's like the little mind is like constantly monitoring. It's totally fine that that's there. It stays for quite a long time. Um, but that's in the background, right? And you just keep having the foreground change, 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 orienting towards change. And then the mind will like start to fixate on the little thought and evaluation or something else. And you just keep orienting back over and over and over again, just noticing change, 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 change. There's this quote by Maya Angelou that I love. Um, it's a woman in harmony with her spirit is like a river flowing. She goes where she goes without pretense and arrives at her destination as herself and only herself. A woman in, in harmony with her spirit is like a river flowing. And I would say any gendered being in harmony with their spirit is like a river flowing. They go where they go without pretense and arrive at their destination prepared to be their self and only their self. So when we train in this capacity to be with change, we're training in a capacity to be emergent, to be alive, to be able to be responsive, to be prepared to be ourself and only ourself. It also helps to cut through this belief that we are separate. So when we start to look through this lens of impermanence, it starts to cut through this delusion of separateness that causes us so much pain because we think we're alone. We think we're in a separate identity. But as we drop in and keep letting go into this continual changing experience, we start to open up to another truth. We start to open up to a deeper truth through this lack of self-referencing, through this radical letting go. You know, when we think we're separate, that's the root cause of why we need to compare, why we need to judge, why we need to 
hold on, why we need to. So when any of those things are happening in the mind, when you have this understanding that, oh, seeing change can help to uproot this, it can again help to like build the faith to not go with the thought because you can see like, oh, I'm training and being in harmony with my spirit. I'm training in being a river and training in being a river one way, not the only way, but one way is by coming in close contact with change, coming into this non-conceptual reality, not where the concepts aren't still potentially present in the background or happening, but where we're closer and closer and closer to the direct experience of change. It also helps us to release things as they go by. And I think Susie is a great example of this. You know, she just wasn't fixated, at least in that moment when I talked with her. And it just helps us, like, when something comes, by noticing change over and over again, it can help us to release. It can help us to let go because we see the changing nature. Sometimes when we notice change, that isn't what the response is. Sometimes when we notice change, there's a strong clinging that goes along with it. So you can like notice the change and then it's like there's a clinging onto it. And so in that case, then you're noticing change and you're also noticing clinging. And that's totally fine. That's a very important part of the practice. You're not doing anything wrong. So you just want to notice those two are co-arising. The change and the dukkha are co-arising. Or change and sometimes fear. The dukkha can arise as fear. And then other times when we're in contact with change, it can be very exciting. You know, we can open up to like, whoa, anything is possible just this, this excitement and aliveness. The Satipatthana Sutta, which is the treaty or the treatise on um, how to practice mindfulness, um, in between each of the refrains, we're instructed to um, contemplate the nature of arising, contemplate the nature of passing away, and contemplate both the nature of arising and passing away. So we'll do this in the instructions tomorrow, but we'll be looking at, um, we'll be looking at the nature of arising, the nature of passing away, and then the nature of arising and passing away. It's one of the techniques that we'll use tomorrow to orient in this direction. Analayo who's a, a wonderful monk who will be here in the fall, I think. Um, brilliant scholar, beautiful heart and mind, wrote um, some really good books on the Satipatthana Sutta. And um, his pith instruction, if he were just going to say like, okay, your pith instruction for the Satipatthana Sutta is keep calmly noting change. pretty profound. When I was first practicing, I was uh, part of the family program here and I got the opportunity, Ajahn Amaro, who's a Thai forest monk who now runs a monastery in England, beautiful monk. I had the opportunity to have a practice interview with him before my 
uh, before sitting a month. And I said, you know, I was so nervous. Oh my gosh, you guys, I was terrified. And I asked him what I, what I should do, you know? And he said, notice change. Just keep noticing change in all you do. I had no idea how to do that. He didn't give me like a 45 minute talk. He just said, notice change. But, uh, but I never forgot that and pass it on to you. This is actually a quote from Susie. She says, when we see that we are not a thing separate, but part of this flow, then we see that we are actually part of everything. When we see that we are not a thing separate, but part of this ever-changing flow, then we see that we are actually part of everything. So just a few words on dukkha. And then um, I won't talk on anatta tonight. I won't talk on no self. Uh, Donald will cover that tomorrow. So dukkha. Dukkha, 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 dukkha. My favorite translation, actually, of dukkha is the first noble truth of ouch. <laughs> it's kind of like what I started off the talk with, of just like, it's vulnerable, huh? It's super tender. It's just so tender being human. And uh, I practiced at first thinking that, like, that this was going to transcend that tenderness or transcend that pain. Um. And what I've come to now is that um, it's this first noble truth, it's this dukkha, it's this tenderness, it's this out that is actually the doorway to compassion. That every amount of suffering that I have gone through has made me more able to sit in the fire with each of you. Not that I do that perfectly and by any means, but that any time I'm and I meet my own pain, it means I'm able to be there for others. It means I'm able to stay connected with others. It's like the thing that connects us, one of the things that connects us. And uh, it, that just gives me a ton of faith. And another thing that I often do when I'm struggling with something is I'll think of my ancestors. And I'll think of the next generation. You know, I'll think to my grandmothers and my great-grandmothers and my grandfathers and my great-grandfathers. And I'll say, you know, you didn't live in a time where you had the, the privilege that I have. And so I'm going to stop this pattern for us. And then I'll think of the future generations and say, I'm not passing this pattern on to you. I get fierce. <laughs> you know, just like, no, I'm stopping this. I'm stopping this, stopping in this generation, period. And I know my parents did that for me. And I know my grandparents did that for me. And I know my great-grandparents. I think, you know, we've just been doing it for each other. I guess I don't know that, but there's, I know my parents did. There's a sense that the other generations have. So this distinction between the ouch or the, the 
uh, dissatisfactoriness. That's just the nature of this realm. What the Buddha called, he said, this realm is burning. This realm is burning. There's just a friction being embodied. It just, you can, and you can feel it if you just kind of sense into your experience right now. It's like just a friction, like a, I don't know, we'll explore it more with practice. Um, but there's a, fr- there's a friction. There can be an unsatisfactoriness the way you tune into it. And then we push and pull on experience. This is where the dukkha, this is where the reactivity comes in, where we, we grasp after what we want, we push away what we don't want, and when things are boring, we space out. Right? So we're just constantly pushing and pulling. I like this. I want it to be this way. I don't like this. I don't want it to be that way. Oh, this is boring. I'm going to think about what I'm going to do whenever. You know, it's just constantly push, pull, push, pull, push, pull, which keeps us out of this non-conceptual flow, changing, groundless, you know, endlessly renewing, endlessly releasing reality. One of the ways I love to work with this is from a Thai f- a Burmese monk named Utejaniya. And he uses these phrases that I find incredibly helpful. So, and this was attitude. Someone asked the question about attitude today. Um, so we can start to, uh, not during the, we wouldn't do this during the Samadhi practice. This would be more in the insight practice we can just drop the question in our mind, is there something that's happening now I don't want to be happening? Is there something that's happening now that I don't want to be happening? And that's a, that when we ask that, sometimes we can just see the aversion. There might be a way we're like subtly, and this is, it can get super subtle, you guys. It feels super still and super, even can be very pleasant, but then you notice in the mind, there's a subtle pushing away. The other question is, is there something I wish were happening that isn't happening? Is there something I wish that were happening that isn't happening? Or is there something that's happening that I want more to happen? So we're kind of at like looking in the mind for greed. Are we grasping after an experience? We're wanting it to continue. And then the third, am I spacing out? Am I spacing out? And so these are ways to gently inquire to see, are we pushing and pulling on experience? Ways to look at dukkha and see this reactivity. Are we reacting? So I'll close with... um, a few, a few words from different people. One is from Ajahn Chah. And um, this is around the merging of insight and samadhi at this like inner set, this crossroads where we'll, where we'll explore tomorrow. He says, have you ever seen flowing water? Have you ever seen still water? If your mind is peaceful, 
it will be just like still flowing water. Have you ever seen still flowing water? There. You've only ever seen flowing water and still water, haven't you? But you've never seen still flowing water. Right there. Right where your thinking mind cannot take you. Even though it's peaceful, you can develop wisdom. Your mind will be like flowing water, and yet it's still. It's almost as if it were still, and yet it's flowing. So I call it still flowing water. Wisdom can arise here. And um, this other thing I just, I wanted to share with you, this is um, something I got. I was uh, watching a, 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 a concert for um, Standing Rock just before I came here. And in the beginning of the concert, they had a, a Native American elder explaining some of the cosmology of their tradition in it it was exactly the same thing. So I thought I would offer it as well. And this, and this elder said in the beginning, there was first stone. Then there was water. When the two came together, they created a sacred sound. That sound is life energy. In the beginning, there was first stone. Then there was water. When the two came together, they created a sacred sound. That sound is the life energy. Interesting how wisdom has found its way all over the globe. Let's sit for a moment. Right there, right where your thinking mind cannot take you. Even though it's peaceful, you can develop wisdom. I call it still flowing water. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.